0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road, and Chapter 6 of The Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan, The Adventure of the Bald Archaeologist. I spent the night on a shelf of the hillside, in the lee of a boulder where the heather grew long and soft. It was a cold business, for I had neither coat nor waistcoat. These were in Mr. Turnbull's keeping, as was Scudder's little book my watch, and, worst of all, my pipe and tobacco pouch. Only my money accompanied me in my belt, and about half a pound of ginger biscuits in my trousers' pocket. I supped off half those biscuits, and by worming myself deep into the heather got some kind of warmth. My spirits had risen, and I was beginning to enjoy this crazy game of hide-and-seek. So far I had been miraculously lucky. The milkman... The literary innkeeper, Sir Harry the roadman, and the idiotic Marmy were all pieces of undeserved good fortune. Somehow the first success gave me a feeling that I was going to pull the thing through. My chief trouble was that I was desperately hungry. I lay and tortured myself, for the ginger biscuits merely emphasized the aching void, with the memory of all the good food I had thought so little of in London. There were paddock's crisp sausages and fragrant shavings of bacon and shapely poached eggs. How often I'd turned up my nose at them! There were the cutlets they did at the club and a particular ham that stood on the cold table for which my soul lusted. My thoughts hovered over all the varieties of mortal edible and finally settled on a porterhouse steak and a quart of bitter with a Welsh rabbit to follow. In longing hopelessly for these dainties I fell asleep. I woke very cold and stiff about an hour after dawn. It took me a little while to remember where I was, for I had been very weary and had slept heavily. I saw first the pale blue sky through a net of heather, then a big shoulder of hill, and then my own boots placed neatly in a blueberry bush. I raised myself on my arms and looked down into the valley, and that one look set me lacing up my boots in mad haste for there were men below, not more than a quarter of a mile off, spaced out on a hillside like a fan, and beating the heather. Marmy had not been slow in looking for his revenge. I crawled out of my shelf into the cover of a boulder, and from it gained a shallow trench which slanted up the mountain face. This led me presently into the narrow gully of a burn, by way of which I scrambled to the top of the ridge. From there I looked back, "'and saw that I was still undiscovered. "'My pursuers were patiently quartering the hillside "'and moving upwards. "'Keeping behind the skyline, "'I ran for maybe half a mile, "'till I judged I was above the uppermost end of the glen. "'Then I showed myself, "'and was instantly noted by one of the flankers, "'who passed the word to the others. "'I heard cries coming up from below, "'and saw that the line of search had changed its direction. "'I pretended to retreat over the skyline, "'but instead went back the way I had come, "'and in twenty minutes was behind the ridge "'overlooking my sleeping place. "'From that viewpoint I had the satisfaction "'of seeing the pursuit streaming up the hill "'at the top of the glen on a hopelessly false scent. "'I had before me a choice of routes, "'and I chose a ridge which made an angle "'with the one I was on, "'and so would soon put a deep glen "'between me and my enemies. "'The exercise had warmed my blood, and I was beginning to enjoy myself amazingly. As I went, I breakfasted on the dusty remnants of the ginger biscuits. I knew very little about the country, and I hadn't a notion what I was going to do. I trusted to the strength of my legs, but I was well aware that those behind me would be familiar with the lie of the land, and that my ignorance would be a heavy handicap. I saw in front of me a sea of hills, rising very high towards the south, "'but northwards breaking down into broad ridges "'which separated wide and shallow dales. "'The ridge I had chosen seemed to sink after a mile or two "'to a moor which lay like a pocket in the uplands. "'That seemed as good a direction to take as any other. "'My stratagem had given me a fair start, "'call it twenty minutes, "'and I had the width of a glen behind me "'before I saw the first heads of the pursuers. "'The police had evidently called in local talent to their aid.' and the men I could see had the appearance of herds or gamekeepers. They hallooed at the sight of me, and I waved my hand. Two dived into the glen and began to climb my ridge, while the others kept their own side of the hill. I felt as if I were taking part in a schoolboy game of hare and hounds. But very soon it began to seem less of a game. Those fellows behind were hefty men on their native heath. Looking back I saw that only three were following direct, and I guessed that the others had fetched a circuit to cut me off. My lack of local knowledge might very well be my undoing, and I resolved to get out of this tangle of glens to the pocket of moor I'd seen from the tops. I must so increase my distance as to get clear away from them, and I believed I could do this if I could find the right ground for it. If there had been cover, I would have tried a bit of stalking, but on these bare slopes you could see a fly a mile off, my hope must be in the length of my legs and the soundness of my wind, but I needed easier ground for that, for I was not bred a mountaineer. How I longed for a good Afrikander pony! I put on a great sport and got off my ridge and down into the moor before any figures appeared on the skyline behind me. I crossed a burn and came out on a high road which made a pass between two glens, all in front of me was a big field of heather sloping up to a crest. "'which was crowned with an odd feather of trees. "'In the dike by the roadside was a gate "'from which a grass-grown track led over the first wave of the moor. "'I jumped the dike and followed it, "'and after a few hundred yards, "'as soon as it was out of sight of the highway, "'the grass stopped, and it became a very respectable road, "'which was evidently kept with some care. "'Clearly it ran to a house, "'and I began to think of doing the same. "'Hitherto my luck had held,' "'and it might be that my best chance would be found "'in this remote dwelling. "'Anyhow, there were trees there, "'and that meant cover. "'I did not follow the road "'but the burned side which flanked it on the right, "'where the bracken grew deep "'and the high banks made a tolerable screen. "'It was well I did so, "'for no sooner had I gained the hollow "'than, looking back, "'I saw the pursuit topping the ridge "'from which I had descended. "'After that, I did not look back, I had no time. I ran up the burnside, crawling over the open places, and for a large part wading in the shallow stream. I found the deserted cottage with a row of phantom peat stacks and an overgrown garden. Then I was among young hay, and very soon had come to the edge of a plantation of wind-blown firs. From there I saw the chimneys of the house smoking a few hundred yards to my left. I forsook the burnside, crossed another dike, and almost before I knew was on a rough lawn. A glance back told me that I was well out of sight of the pursuit which had not yet passed the first lift of the moor. The lawn was a very rough place, cut with a scythe instead of a mower, and planted with beds of scrubby rhododendrons. A brace of black game, which are not usually garden birds, rose at my approach. The house before me was an ordinary moorland farm with a more pretentious whitewashed wing added. Attached to this wing was a glass veranda, and through the glass I saw the face of an elderly gentleman meekly watching me. I stalked over the border of coarse hill gravel and entered the open veranda door. Within was a pleasant room, glass on one side, and on the other a mass of books. More books showed in an inner room. On the floor, instead of tables, stood cases such as you see in a museum, filled with coins and queer stone implements. There was a knee-hole desk in the middle, and seated at it, with some papers and open volumes before him, was the benevolent old gentleman. His face was round and shiny, like Mr. Pickwick's. Big glasses were stuck on the end of his nose, and the top of his head was as bright and bare as a glass bottle. He never moved when I entered, but raised his placid eyebrows, and waited on me to speak. It was not an easy job, with about five minutes to spare, to tell a stranger who I was, and what I wanted, and to win his aid. I did not attempt it. There was something about the eye of the man before me, something so keen and knowledgeable, that I could not find a word. I simply stared at him and stuttered. "'You seem in a hurry, my friend,' he said slowly. I nodded towards the window. It gave a prospect across the moor through a gap in the plantation, and revealed certain figures half a mile off, straggling through the heather. "'Ah, I see,' he said, and took up a pair of field-glasses through which he patiently scrutinized the figures. "'A fugitive from justice, eh? "'Well, we'll go into the matter at our leisure. "'Meantime, I object to my privacy "'being broken in upon by the clumsy rural policeman. "'Go into my study, "'and you will see two doors facing you. "'Take the one on the left.' and close it behind you. You will be perfectly safe. And this extraordinary man took up his pen again. I did as I was bid, and found myself in a little dark chamber which smelt of chemicals, and was lit only by a tiny window high up in the wall. The door had swung behind me with a click like the door of a safe. Once again I had found that unexpected sanctuary. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. All the same, I was not comfortable. There was something about the old gentleman which puzzled and rather terrified me. He had been too easy and ready, almost as if he had expected me, and his eyes had been horribly intelligent. No sound came to me in that dark place. For all I knew, the police might be searching the house, and if they did, they would want to know what was behind this door. I tried to possess my soul in patience and to forget how hungry I was. "'Then I took a more cheerful view. "'The old gentleman could scarcely refuse me a meal, "'and I fell to reconstructing my breakfast. "'Bacon and eggs would content me, "'but I wanted the better part of a slice of bacon "'and half a hundred eggs, "'and then, while my mouth was watering in anticipation, "'there was a click, and the door stood open. "'I emerged into the sunlight to find the master of the house "'sitting in a deep armchair in the room he called his study.' and regarding me with curious eyes. "'Have they gone?' I asked. "'They have gone. "'I convinced them that you had crossed the hill. "'I do not choose that the police should come between me "'and one whom I am delighted to honor. "'This is a lucky morning for you, Mr. Richard Hannay. "'As he spoke, his eyelids seemed to tremble "'and to fall a little over his keen gray eyes. "'In a flash, the phrase of Scudders came back to me. "'when he had described the man he most dreaded in the world. "'He had said that he "'could hood his eyes like a hawk. "'Then I saw that I had walked straight "'into the enemy's headquarters. "'My first impulse was to throttle the old ruffian "'and make for the open air. "'He seemed to anticipate my intention, "'for he smiled gently "'and nodded to the door behind me. "'I turned and saw two men-servants "'who had me covered with pistols. "'He knew my name,' That he had never seen me before. "'And as the reflection darted across my mind, "'I saw a slender chance. "'I don't know what you mean,' "'I said roughly. "'And who are you calling Richard Hannay? "'My name's Ainsley.' "'So,' "'he said, still smiling. "'But of course you have others. "'We won't quarrel about a name.' "'I was pulling myself together now, "'and I reflected that my garb lacking coat and waistcoat and collar, would at any rate not betray me. I put on my surliest face and shrugged my shoulders. I suppose you're going to give me up after all, and I call it a damn dirty trick. My God, I wish I'd never seen that cursed motor car. Here's the money and be damned to you, and I flung four sovereigns on the table. He opened his eyes a little. Oh, no, I shall not give you up. My friends and I will have a little private settlement with you, that is all. You know a little too much, Mr. Henney. You are a clever actor, but not quite clever enough. He spoke with assurance, but I could see the dawning of doubt in his mind. Oh, for God's sake, stop jawing! I cried. Everything's against me. I haven't had a bit of luck since I came on shore at Leith. "'What's the harm in a poor devil with an empty stomach "'picking up some money he finds in a busted-up motor-car? "'That's all I done, "'and for that I've been chivied for two days "'by those blasted bobbies over these blasted hills. "'I tell you, I'm fair sick of it. "'You can do what you like, old boy. "'Ned Ainsley's got no fight left in him.' "'I could see that the doubt was gaining. "'Will you oblige me with the story of your recent doings?' "'He asked. "'I can't, Governor.' "'I said in a real beggar's whine. "'I've not had a bite to eat for two days. "'Give me a mouthful of food, "'and then you'll hear the God's truth.' "'I must have showed my hunger in my face, "'for he signaled to one of the men in the doorway. "'A bit of cold pie was brought and a glass of beer, "'and I wolfed them down like a pig, "'or rather, like Ned Engley, "'for I was keeping up my character. "'In the middle of my meal he spoke suddenly to me in German.' "'but I turned on him a face as blank as a stone wall. "'Then I told him my story, "'how I had come off an archangel ship at Leith a week ago "'and was making my way overland to my brother at Wigtown. "'I'd run short of cash. "'I hinted vaguely at a spree, "'and I was pretty well on my uppers "'when I'd come on a hole in a hedge "'and looking through had seen a big motor car lying in the burn. "'I had poked about to see what had happened, "'and I found three sovereigns lying on the seat "'and one on the floor.' There was nobody there or any sign of an owner, so I had pocketed the cash. But somehow the law had got after me. When i tried to change a sovereign in a baker's shop, the woman had cried on the police, and a little later, when I was washing my face in a burn, I'd been nearly gripped and had got only away by leaving my coat and waistcoat behind me. "'They can have the money back,' I cried. "'For a fat lot of good it's done me.' "'Those parishes were all down on a poor man. "'Now if it had been you, governor, that had found the quids, "'nobody here would have troubled you.' "'You're a good liar, Hannay, he said. "'I flew into a rage. "'Stop fooling, damn you! "'I tell you my name's Ansley, "'and I've never heard of anyone called Henné in my born days. "'I'd sooner have the police than you with your Hennés "'and your monkey-faced pistol tricks.' "'No, Governor, I beg pardon. "'I don't mean that. "'I'm much obliged to you for the grub, "'and I'll thank you to let me go now the coast's clear.' "'It was obvious that he was badly puzzled. "'You see, he had never seen me, "'and my appearance must have altered considerably "'from my photographs, if he had got one of them. "'I was pretty smart and well-dressed in London, "'and now I was a regular tramp. "'I do not propose to let you go.' "'If you are what you say you are, "'you will soon have a chance of clearing yourself. "'If you are what I believe you are, "'I do not think you will see the light "'much longer.' He rang a bell, and a third servant "'appeared from the veranda. "'I want the Lanchester in five minutes,' "'he said. "'There will be three to luncheon.' Then he looked steadily at me, and that was the hardest ordeal of all. There was something weird and devilish in those eyes, cold, malignant, unearthly, and most hellishly clever. They fascinated me like the bright eyes of a snake. I had a strong impulse to throw myself in his mercy and offer to join his side, and if you consider the way I felt about the whole thing, you will see that that impulse must have been purely physical, the weakness of a brain mesmerized and mastered by a stronger spirit. But I managed to stick it out, and even to grin. "'You'll know me next time, Governor,' I said. Carl. He spoke in German to one of the men in the doorway. You will put this fellow in the storeroom till I return, and you will be answerable to me for his keeping. I was marched out of the room with a pistol at each ear. The storeroom was a deep chamber in what had been the old farmhouse. There was no carpet on the uneven floor, and nothing to sit down on but a school form. It was black as pitch, but the windows were heavily shuttered. I made out by groping that the walls were lined with boxes and barrels and sacks of some heavy stuff. The whole place smelt of mold and disuse. My jailers turned the key in the door, and I could hear them shifting their feet as they stood on guard outside. I sat down in that chilly darkness in a very miserable frame of mind. The old boy had gone off in a motor to collect the two ruffians who had interviewed me yesterday. "'Now they had seen me as the roadman, "'and they would remember me, for I was in the same rig. "'What was a roadman doing twenty miles from his deet, "'pursued by the police? "'A question or two would put them on the track. "'Probably they had seen Mr. Turnbull, "'probably Marmy, too. "'Most likely they could link me up with Sir Harry, "'and then the whole thing would be crystal clear. "'What chance had I, in this moorland house, "'with three desperados and their armed servants?' "'I began to think wistfully of the police "'now plodding over the hills after my wraith. "'They, at any rate, were fellow countrymen and honest men, "'and their tender mercies would be kinder "'than those ghoulish aliens. "'But they wouldn't have listened to me. "'That old devil with the eyelids "'had not taken long to get rid of them. "'I thought he probably had some kind of graft "'with the constabulary. "'Most likely he had letters from cabinet ministers "'saying he was to be giving every facility "'for plotting against Britain.' "'That's the sort of owlish way we run our politics in this jolly old country. "'The three would be back for lunch, "'so I hadn't more than a couple of hours to wait. "'It was simply waiting on destruction, "'for I could see no way out of this mess. "'I wish that I had Scudder's courage, "'for I am free to confess that I didn't feel any great fortitude. "'The only thing that kept me going was that I was pretty furious. "'It made me boil with rage to think of those three spies "'getting the pull on me like this.' I hoped that at any rate I might be able to twist one of their necks before they downed me. The more I thought of it, the angrier I grew, and I had to get up and move about the room. I tried the shutters, but they were the kind that lock with a key, and I couldn't remove them. From the outside came the faint clucking of hens in the warm sun. Then I groped among the Saxon boxes. I couldn't open the ladder— and the sacks seemed to be full of things like dog biscuits that smelt of cinnamon. But, as I circumnavigated the room, I found a handle in the wall which seemed worth investigating. It was the door of a wall cupboard, what they call a press in Scotland, and it was locked. I shook it, and it seemed rather flimsy. For want of something better to do, I put out my strength on that door, getting some purchase on the handle by looping my braces round it. Presently the thing gave with a crash which I thought would bring in my warders to inquire. I waited for a bit, and then started to explore the cupboard shelves. There was a multitude of queer things there. I found an odd Vesta or two in my trouser pockets, and struck a light. It was out in a second, but it did show me one thing. There was a little stock of electric flashlights on one shelf. I picked up one, and found it was in working order. Now, with a light to help me, I investigated further. There were bottles and cases of queer-smelling stuffs, chemicals, no doubt, for experiments, and there were coils of fine copper wire and yanks and yanks of thin, oiled silk. There was a box of detonators and a lot of cord for fuses. Then away at the back of the shelf I found a stout brown cardboard box and inside it a wooden case. I managed to wrench it open and within lay half a dozen little gray bricks, "'each a couple of inches square. "'I took up one "'and found that it crumbled easily in my hand. "'Then I smelt it "'and put my tongue to it. "'After that I sat down to think. "'I hadn't been a mining engineer "'for nothing, "'and I knew lintonite when I saw it. "'With one of these bricks "'I could blow the house to smithereens. "'I had used the stuff in Rhodesia "'and knew its power. "'But the trouble was "'that my knowledge wasn't exact.' I had forgotten the proper charge and the right way of preparing it, and I wasn't sure about the timing. I had only a vague notion, too, as to its power, for though I had used it, I had not handled it with my own fingers. But it was a chance, and the only possible chance. It was a mighty risk, for against it was an absolute black certainty. If I used it, the odds were, as I reckoned, about five to one in favor of my blowing myself into the treetops, But if I didn't, I should very likely be occupying a six foot hole in the garden by the evening. That was the way I had to look at it. The prospect was pretty dark either way, but anyhow, there was a chance, both for myself and for my country. The remembrance of little Scudder decided me. It was about the beastliest moment of my life, for I'm no good at these cold blooded resolutions. Still, I managed to rake up the pluck to set my teeth. "'and choked back the horrid doubts that flooded in on me. "'I simply shut off my mind "'and pretended I was doing an experiment "'as simple as Guy Fawkes fireworks. "'I got a detonator "'and fixed it to a couple of feet of fuse. "'Then I took a quarter of the lentinite brick "'and buried it near the door "'below one of the sacks in the crack on the floor, "'fixing the detonator in it. "'For all I knew, "'half these boxes might be dynamite. "'If the cupboard held such deadly explosives... Why not the boxes? In that case, there would be a glorious skyward journey for me and the German servants, and about an acre of surrounding country. There was also the risk that the detonation might set off the other bricks in the cupboard, for I had forgotten most that I knew about Lentonite. But it didn't do to begin thinking about the possibilities. The odds were horrible. But I had to take them. I ensconced myself just below the sill of the window— and lit the fuse. Then I waited for a moment or two. There was a dead silence, only a shuffle of heavy boots in the passage, and the peaceful cluck of hens from the warm out of doors. I commended my soul to my Maker, and I wondered where I would be in five seconds. A great wave of heat seemed to surge upwards from the floor, and hang for a blistering instant in the air. Then the wall opposite me flashed into a golden yellow and dissolved with a rending thunder that hammered my brain into a pulp. Something dropped on me, catching the point of my left shoulder. And I think I became unconscious. My stupor can scarcely have lasted beyond a few seconds. I felt myself being choked by thick yellow fumes, and struggled out of the debris to my feet. Somewhere behind me I felt fresh air. The jams of the window had fallen, and through the ragged rent, THE SMOKE WAS POURING OUT TO THE SUMMER NOON. I STEPPED OVER THE BROKEN LINTEL AND FOUND MYSELF STANDING IN A YARD IN A DENSE AND acrid FOG. I FELT VERY SICK AND ILL, BUT I COULD MOVE MY LIMBS AND I STAGGERED BLINDLY FORWARD AWAY FROM THE HOUSE. A SMALL MILL LAID RAN IN A WOODEN AQUEDUCT AT THE OTHER SIDE OF THE YARD AND INTO THIS I FELL. THE COOL WATER REVIVED ME AND I HAD JUST ENOUGH WITS TO THINK OF ESCAPE. "'I squirmed up the lade among the slippery green slime "'till I reached the mill wheel. "'Then I wriggled through the axle-hole into the old mill "'and tumbled onto a bed of chaff. "'A nail caught the seat of my trousers, "'and I left a wisp of heather mixture behind me. "'The mill had long been out of use. "'The ladders were rotten with age, "'and in the loft the rats had gnawed great holes in the floor. "'Nausea shook me, and a wheel in my head kept turning.' while my left shoulder and arm seemed to be stricken with the palsy. I looked out of the window and saw a fog still hanging over the house and smoke escaping from an upper window. Please God I would set the place on fire, for I could hear confused cries coming from the other side. But I had no time to linger, since this mill was obviously a bad hiding place. Anyone looking for me would naturally follow the lade. "'and I made certain the search would begin "'as soon as they found that my body was not in the storeroom. "'From another window I saw that on the far side of the mill "'stood an old stone dubcot. "'If I could get there without leaving tracks, "'I might find a hiding-place, "'for I argued that my enemies, if they thought I could move, "'would conclude that I had made for open country, "'and would go seeking me on the moor. "'I crawled down the broken ladder, "'scattering the shaft behind me to cover my footsteps. I did the same on the mill floor and on the threshold where the door hung on broken hinges. Peeping out, I saw that between me and the dovecot was a piece of bare cobbled ground where no footmarks would show. Also, it was mercifully hid by the mill buildings from any view from the house. I slipped across the space, got to the back of the dovecot and prospected a way of ascent. That was one of the hardest jobs I ever took on. My shoulder and arm ached like hell. I was so sick and giddy that I was always on the verge of falling. But I managed it somehow. By the use of out stones and gaps in the masonry and a tough ivy root, I got to the top in the end. There was a little parapet behind which I found space to lie down. Then I proceeded to go off into an old-fashioned swoon. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. I woke with a burning head and the sun glaring in my face. For a long time I lay motionless, for those horrible fumes seemed to have loosened my joints and dulled my brain. Sounds came to me from the house, men speaking throatily and the throbbing of a stationary car. There was a little gap in the parapet to which I wriggled, and from which I had some sort of prospect of the yard. I saw figures come out, a servant with his head bound up, "'and then a younger man in knickerbockers. "'They were looking for something "'and moved towards the mill. "'Then one of them caught sight of the wisp of cloth on the nail "'and cried out to the other. "'They both went back to the house "'and brought two more to look at it. "'I saw the rotund figure of my late captor "'and I thought I made out the man with the lisp. "'I noticed that all of them had pistols. "'For half an hour they ransacked the mill.' "'I could hear them kicking over the barrels and, "'and pulling up the rotten planking. "'Then they came outside "'and stood just below the dovecot, "'arguing fiercely. "'The servant with the bandage "'was being soundly rated. "'I heard them fiddling with the door "'of the dovecot, and for one horrid moment "'I fancied they were coming up. "'Then they thought better of it "'and went back to the house. "'All that long, blistering afternoon "'I lay baking on the rooftop. "'Thirst was my chief torment.' My tongue was like a stick and to make it worse I could hear the cool drip of water from the mill lade. I watched the course of the little stream as it came in from the moor and my fancy followed it to the top of the glen where it must issue from an icy fountain fringed with cool ferns and mosses. I would have given a thousand pounds to plunge my face into that. I had a fine prospect of the whole ring of moorland. I saw the car speed away with two occupants "'and a man on the hill pony-riding east. "'I judged they were looking for me, "'and I wished them joy of their quest. "'But I saw something else more interesting. "'The house stood almost on the summit "'of a swell of moorland "'which crowned the sort of plateau, "'and there was no higher point "'nearer than the big hills six miles off. "'The actual summit, as I have mentioned, "'was a biggest clump of trees, firs mostly, with a few ashes and beeches.' On the dovecot I was almost on a level with the treetops, and I could see what lay beyond. The wood was not solid, but only a ring, and inside was an oval of green turf for all the world like a big cricket field. It didn't take long to guess what it was. It was an aerodrome, a landing field, and a secret one. The place had been most cunningly chosen, for suppose anyone were watching an aeroplane descending here, he would think it had gone over the hill beyond the trees. As the place was on top of a rise in the midst of a big amphitheater, any observer from any direction would conclude it had passed out of view beyond the hill. Only a man very close at hand would realize that the aeroplane had not gone over, but had descended in the midst of the wood. An observer with a telescope on one of the higher hills might have discovered the truth, but only herds went there, and herds do not carry spyglasses. When I looked from the dovecot, I could see far away a blue line which I knew was the sea, and I grew furious to think that our enemies had this secret conning tower to rake our waterways. Then I reflected that if that aeroplane came back, the chances were ten to one that I would be discovered. So through the afternoon I lay and prayed for the coming of darkness, and glad I was when the sun went down over the big western hills and the twilight haze crept over the moor. The aeroplane was late. The gloaming was far advanced when I heard the beat of wings and saw it volplaning downward to its home in the wood. Lights twinkled for a bit and there was much coming and going from the house. Then the dark fell and silence. Thank God it was a black night. The moon was well on its last quarter and would not rise till late. My thirst was too great to allow me to tarry so about nine o'clock so far as I could judge "'I started to descend. "'It wasn't easy, "'and halfway down I heard the back door of the house open "'and saw the gleam of a lantern against the mill wall. "'For some agonizing minutes I hung by the ivy "'and prayed that whoever it was "'would not come round by the dovecot. "'Then the light disappeared, "'and I dropped as softly as I could "'onto the hard soil of the yard. "'I crawled on my belly in the lee of a stone dyke "'till I reached the fringe of trees "'which surrounded the house.' If I had known how to do it, I would have tried to put that aeroplane out of action. But I realized that any attempt would probably be futile. I was pretty certain that there would be some kind of defense around the house, so I went through the woods on hands and knees, feeling carefully every inch before me. It was as well, for presently I came on a wire about two feet from the ground. If I had tripped over that, it would doubtless have rung some bell in the house, and I would have been captured." A hundred yards further on I found another wire cunningly placed on the edge of a small stream. Beyond that lay the moor, and in five minutes I was deep in bracken and heather. Soon I was round the shoulder of the rise in the little glen from which the mill laid flowed. Ten minutes later my face was in the spring, and I was soaking down pints of the blessed water. But it did not stop till I put half a dozen miles between me and that accursed dwelling. Join us next week for Chapter 7, The Dry Fly Fisherman, in the 39 Steps, by John Buchan. We really appreciate reviews, and here are a few recent ones. This one, five stars, brilliant storytelling. Thank you for the clever and considered reading of some of the best stories of all time. My story walk is now my favorite time of day. How lucky we are to be able to access these classics in their authentic form, but told with such vibrancy and character. I can never go past Sherlock Holmes and very much enjoyed the antics of the mischievous Huckleberry Finn. Please keep these great stories coming. Tash, New Zealand. And the next one, thanks, five stars. Your podcasts are great. I love the way you read the reviews. Never understood why people complain about commercials when the podcasts are free. I only wish I could afford to contribute to you, but I'm on a fixed income, so I'm happy to listen to commercials or fast forward. Thanks again for telling both sides of the stories. Instead of the new revisionist historians who make American history sound shameful or just downright horrible, I'm very proud of American history and of my family history, who have been in almost every American war starting with the French and Indian War. God bless America and her history and keep up the good work. That one from Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, highly entertaining and soothing. I listen to John's podcast to unwind, or as the soundtrack to mundane tasks. Chores are easier to bear while listening to a good story. Thanks, John. That one from D.W. Strickland, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, best way to commute, five stars. I commute two hours per day for work. These stories make the time fly by. I've been through Huck Finn, Lost World, Treasure Island, and more. Currently, I'm on Captain Smith, and it's fantastic. Keep up the great work. That one from Socially Discontent, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, truly fantastic. I've tried many story podcasts, but never found myself sticking with them until I stumbled across the 1001 collection. I've listened to just about all your stories, many of the Sherlock Holmes ones, multiple times. Please keep adding more. Jess in Oz, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, superb, five stars. John brings the old-fashioned art of storytelling to life, and his choice of stories is spot on. The Lost World is a fantastic story, and one of the best of all time. His enthusiasm and lively style brings these stories to life. Keep up the good work, sir. You're doing a capital job. That one from UK researcher, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, all stories, five stars. Outstanding. I usually hear all of your new stories. I've listened to all the old ones by Thursday, so I have to find fillers for three days. It's impossible to find anything as good as your stories. Keep up the good work. Fred Nelson, U.S. So many great reviews. I really appreciate them very much. And I know that these reviews help new listeners decide to give us a try. And we appreciate that very much. Please do continue to share our shows with others. That's how we grow. And thank you so much for reviews. And those who haven't sent a review yet, give it a try. And one more note, listeners. I don't talk about it nearly enough, and I really should. And that's our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. That's where you can support us monthly for about the cost of a cup of custom blended coffee. You can help to support this show every month. And yes, I know that we have advertisers and we appreciate them very much, but our Patreon supporters help us in a big way. If you'll take time to visit us at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork, it explains the different levels to you. So one more time, it's patreonp forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Give us a visit. We would appreciate your support very much.